Hello everyone, I would like to welcome you to the Redemption 10B podcast where we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. On today's episode, Jim Mullins, pastor of Theological and Vocational Formation and Redemption, will be interviewing Mark Landville, pastor at Willoughby Christian Reformed Church in Canada. They'll be discussing exodus, elections, and the most vulnerable. Let's listen in. Today we have the privilege of interviewing Mark Glanville. He is someone that I admire a lot for a couple of reasons. One is because he quotes Wendell Berry more than I do, and I really appreciate that. Uh, The other reason is that um, in two days of teaching our seminary class, uh, he got us so excited about reading biblical law that we've been having conversations about Exodus and Deuteronomy all summer long. And so, Mark, it's really good to be here with you. Thanks, Jim. And uh, would you tell us a little bit of your bio, a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm an Aussie. I live in Vancouver. I'm an Aussie, so I grew up cuddling koalas and hopping with kangaroos. <laughs> and I married Erin Goheen Glanville, and we moved to Vancouver. She's Canadian. And we are, I'm a pastor and a scholar, and so is Erin. So we pastored together in downtown Vancouver in kind of a missional justice-seeking worshipping community. And we, um, I, and we also do scholarships. So my area is biblical law, Old Testament law. Uh, we're both very interested in issues of, um, of the call uh, in biblical law to justice. We both are very interested in refugee issues. We're writing a book together on church-based refugee support. And I have the fun of coming down to Phoenix pretty regularly to, to hang out with you guys down here. We have two kids. Mahala is six and Lewin is, is three. So that keeps us very busy. And they love to swim. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, you also have a music background? That's right, yeah, yeah. My previous job was as a jazz pianist on the Sydney jazz scene. So that was very fun. Yeah, it was very fun. So I went from the... It's funny, you know, uh, my experience was going from the band room behind the stage where usually there's a lot of drugs being smoked. Uh, I wasn't smoking the drugs, but uh, I'm sure uh, uh, there, was, there was a pretty thick air, let's just say that, mm. uh, uh, to, going from there to... Uh, to the room behind the sanctuary of church. It was a real contrast. Mm, sure, yeah. <laughs> both, both precious places. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, to jump right in, one of my favorite phrases that I've picked up from you is uh, something I heard you say this last spring, and I, I've just it's stuck with me. It's the phrase of downward mobility. So what is downward mobility and... How do you get a vision of downward mobility? That's a great way to start, Jim. Um, look, I mean, I, I was talking to a, another scholar in Old Testament, in biblical law uh, and biblical ethics recently, and we just agreed that you could summarize biblical ethics, that is to say, you know, uh, how therefore are we to live from the, from the biblical story? Uh, thinking of the, the narrative arc of all of Scripture, you know, what is the center? And, and I think the center... Biblical ethics is that, is that we place the weakest at the center. Mm. That we place wow. the weakest at the center. And, you know, Jesus, in the New Testament, he had, in the Gospels, he had the reputation of, of eating even more than he was teaching. Mm. And, and people would say to him, this man eats with tax collectors and, and prostitutes. And this man befriends sinners and eats with them. New Testament scholars have said that Jesus literally ate his way through the Gospels. Jesus spent his time around, around the table uh, with the marginalized and, and with the poor. 
And that's, that's how our Savior worked. Now you think about what that means. That Jesus was the true Israel. He was showing us what Israel was always supposed to be. Mm-hmm. He, was, he was the one who made the Torah, the law of the Old Testament. But, but as being the true Israel, he was being the true human. Because the whole point of God calling the, the, law, the ancient um, nation of Israel was that this was a recovery of, of what being human was all about. In light of human sin, uh, there was this corruption of what it means to be human, this, this um, erosion, corrosion of human relationship. God starts with one nation, and, and he calls them to, to lead, lead this beautified life, gives them law at Sinai, to, to live together as family. And then here is Jesus, and he's doing what Israel was called to do, but doing what humanity was called to do, um, to, to live as kindred. And this side of the fall, that means living especially uh, for the sake of and, and with the people who are on the outside, the people who are the weakest. And we, we can't escape this, this trajectory, this ethical trajectory. And so as people who are living faithfully into the biblical story, we're called uh, not to seek power, not to seek wealth, but to live as Christ did. Mm. And that means, that means that we count a cost. Mm. That it is God of grace who counted a cost for us, calls us to count a cost for our sisters and brothers, our fellow human beings. And that means that, 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 uh, means that uh, we're not chasing money, but we're taking a, taking a step back from that. And we're slowing down and we're living with the weakest in our communities. Mm. So, so Aaron and I, if you were to come to our, our, our third-year-old boy Lewin's birthday party, you might see a, a whole lot of um, uh, three-year-old boys sitting around uh, our house as well playing games with Lewin. And, and you might see a cake with three candles. But you would also see some of the vulnerable people, people in our neighbourhood that we know really, really well and we do family with them. Mm. And, you know, I, I have a friend who just loves Lewin. And gives him a birthday present every birthday, and uh, he's he's spent twenty five years in jail, and he's a gift to us. Mm. Yeah, he shows us Christ. Yeah. So there are many financial advisors who can tell you how to increase in your upward mobility. I would love for you to play the role of the downward mobility advisor. So somebody has a vision for this. They're they're captured by the biblical story. What would be some tangible things that they can do to be more downwardly mobile? Yeah, sure. I think um, one thing that uh, our community has considered carefully is the houses that we live in. Mm. Um, So many of us share a house. Um, Many of the single people in our community share a house for the long haul. Mm. Um, Many of us have, as a community, we've given generously to turn our church car park uh, into three-story housing for people who are on or near the street. And we've just broken ground a few months ago. It's called the Cohere Project. And in this housing project, people who are on or near the street will be invited to live for the rest of their lives. Uh, and one-third of the people who live there will be people who are perhaps more middle-class, holding regular jobs, mm. who will be what we call co-residents. So, so many of us are making the choice um, to reshape the houses that we live in and, and how we're spending our money so that uh, we're living uh, not uh, in the biggest house that we can, not with the big, great, big backyard, the, the biggest backyard we can afford, uh, but to live well and, and to play our role in the biblical story at this time in Vancouver. So housing would be one example. Mm, that's wonderful. 
So uh, many of the people listening to this are going through a Bible reading plan, and they're probably at about Exodus at this point. Um, would you mind telling us um, basically what's the story of Exodus? What's the message of Exodus? Yeah, uh, Exodus is a story about what God is busy doing. Mm. You know, it's 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 about a God who is who is busy redeeming an enslaved nation. He takes him to Sinai. He shapes his community by his law, and then he gives instructions from chapter 26 and following for construction of the tabernacle all the way to chapter 40, guaranteeing his presence. It's, it's, it's a story of what God is doing in one particular community, but I think it's, a, it's, a, it's like a sandbox model for what God wants to do in the whole world. Can I walk you through it? Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> well, uh, you know how the story starts. Um, Jacob and his family have migrated to Egypt to escape famine, and a new pharaoh comes along and they are enslaved. Mm. And the way that those opening chapters, you know, we, we really have to realize what life was like in Israel before God delivered this enslaved people. Um, you, you remember uh, genocide, that male babies were killed to keep the labor force in subjugation in Exodus chapter 1. You remember how foremen uh, were whipped and beaten, sometimes, uh, I'm sure, beaten to death. Uh, you remember how the foreman begged Pharaoh, reduce the quotas of bricks. And he said, no, I will not reduce your quota of bricks. And now you're lazy. And now you must find your own straw. And that was really a death sentence. It's the kind of thing we see in North Korean labor camps today. where it, it, It's working an enslaved nation to death. And so Israel cries out to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And sa'ak, the Hebrew word, is a technical term for the cry of the oppressed in the Old Testament. They're an oppressed people, an enslaved people. And, and Yahweh comes, meets Moses at the burning bush, and he promises to deliver them, uh, to bring them out of slavery in Egypt. And this is how he reveals himself to Egypt. And I said at the beginning, it's the story of God and what he's busy doing. And it's so significant that when Yahweh, the God of Israel, reveals his name to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapters 3 and 4, he reveals himself as the one. There's Yahweh, the God of Israel. He gives his name. I am, or this is what I'm doing, is probably a very good translation of Yahweh. This is what I'm doing. And he, is, he reveals himself as the one who will emancipate the slave nation. And so he comes. He sends Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is judged for his oppression with this series of plagues, as you know. And then he... <laughs> Yahweh, through these authoritative acts within the kingdom of Pharaoh, emancipates, brings, saves, delivers his enslaved people Israel across the Sea of Reeds and through the wilderness two and a half months later to Mount Sinai. Now, the wilderness uh, chapters from chapter 16 to, nine, to, to 17 uh, are, are these incredible lessons in trust. Mm. And we, what we learn in chapters 17 to 19 is that God is the God who meets us in the wilderness. Mm. He's a God who chooses to make himself known in the wilderness. Mm. And we were speaking about downward mobilization for a minute. And what we learn in these wilderness, in the wilderness wanderings in Exodus from 16 to 17, if, is that God is a God of the wilderness who meets us in the broken places. That's where he meets us. Mm. And he calls us to trust. 
He doesn't meet us in our big houses. He doesn't meet us as we consume all the money that we have on ourselves. He meets us when we're broken and humble. That's where he meets us. Mm. So what we see, and then we come to Sinai, and what we've seen in the book of Exodus is, we, it, and this is missed in most of the scholarship, and it's missed also uh, in preaching, it's a clash of empires. It's a clash mm. of kings. That's what the opening chapters of Exodus is about. It's about the empire of Pharaoh, the self-aggrandizing, wealth-accumulating ruler who, has, who, will, who will exercise production and accumulation at any cost. Mm. He will prioritize economic production and wealth producing over human life mm. and, over, and devalue humanity for the sake of his own accumulation. And, and, the, and for any, any idiot can see that Pharaoh reigns here. There's no questions about that. Pharaoh's army is enormous. He is all-powerful. He is deified even. But silently, quietly, yet visibly, yet always quietly, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is weaving a counter-narrative, a counter-story about a totally different rule and a totally different society. And he whispers it by calling these two Hebrew midwives to rescue the male babies. And, and, and little... Little Miriam, a little girl, who, who God uses to, rent, to keep baby Moses in the Nile, in this basket. And then even Pharaoh's daughter takes Moses into the very courts of Pharaoh, and God's reign is made known there, but yet still quietly. And the brilliance, the genius of Moses' mother, weaving this counter-narrative of not only a different kind of rule, a better rule, a good rule, but a different kind of society altogether. Hmm. And then, in Exodus chapter 19 and 20 and following, this God thunders from Sinai with trumpets and fire. And he thunders his law, the Ten Commandments, chapter 20, chapter 21 to 23. He unfolds these commandments further in a series of life-giving law. And what, you, you know, uh, the nations are, are like a desert of humanity, uh, full of wickedness. And God makes one garden in this desert. and It's ancient Israel, his people. Mm. He builds a garden. He creates a garden. He tends a garden. And the hedge around that garden is the law. Mm. And, and it's, like, it's like with the Exodus, God opens a gate that leads to this beautiful garden. And he says, tend the garden, Israel. Obey the law. Be this contrasted community that I've brought you out of Exodus to be. A place where every person can thrive, especially the most vulnerable. A place where pharaohs, people who would accumulate wealth at the expense of others, can, uh, don't exist. Mm. They're not allowed. Mm. And so this is, this is what's going on. And, and so in the book of Exodus, <coughs> we have uh, these beautiful commands uh, that protect, for example, the stranger or the refugee or the poor immigrant. In, in Exodus chapter 22, uh, verse 2021, and Exodus 23, verse, verse 9, we have these beautiful words that, that protect uh, the widow, which means the woman who has no male kin to look after her and the fatherless, and these prohibitions against oppressing them. We have these fascinating Beautiful laws in Exodus 23, verses 1 to 8. It's actually shaping court systems. Uh, 
mm. so that everyone can have equal access uh, to the law court. Now, in ancient times, um, the elite judged um, for the benefit of the elite. Mm. That was the norm. Uh, you, you know, the elite were caught up in a whole network of relationships, and it was very hard for the poor to get justice. Well, not so in ancient Israel. Because ancient Israel was always created in contradistinction to Pharaoh's Egypt, to be this contrast to society where every person can thrive, especially the most vulnerable. And the highlight of the whole jolly show is the Ten Commandments, mm. which again is hugely misunderstood yeah. uh, today. And the Ten Commandments is, you know, I mean, just think, Jim, just think of, of these Israelites standing at the foot of Sinai, two and a half months out of Egypt. These guys are receiving the law with the wounds from the Egyptian whip still raw and weeping and open on their back. Mm. It's two and a half months. They're standing there as slaves. This is an enslaved nation, only recently emancipated, still in fear of their life, no doubt. And God says to this nation, thou shalt not murder. Mm. You know, that isn't about some kind of gang violence. Mm. That's about Egypt. That's saying that there's going to be no one here who's like Pharaoh did, prioritizes economic production over human life. Mm. Thou shalt not murder. There's going to be no no Pharaohs that try and uh, self-aggrandize and build their empire as a, at the expense of other people. Mm. You know, and, and you know it, it's it, it it sounds like you know that that's obvious. Every society would know that you can't kill people, but actually the opposite is true in most societies. You know, 200 years ago in England, for example, someone was, a person was killed if they stole a sheep. Mm. And that, wow. in that 200-year-old law in England, that, that's prioritising human life, economic production over human life, right? Yeah. But, it's, you know, we are a polite society. We are a society that pushes away injustice out of sight, out of mind. But even just our trade rules that, that America and Australia and Canada share... They prioritise economic production over human life. Mm. You know, um, the amount of money that the US, uh, that Western countries' donations, UN donations give in aid, is 20-fold less than the amount of money that majority world, the poorest countries lose because of unfair trade rules. Mm. That Canada, Australia and the US, that we charge higher tariffs on goods that are imported to our, into our countries from the third world, from the from the developing world, uh, than we charge on than we charge for imported goods from other countries from whom we might benefit, such as the US, Canada, and Australia, and the UK and New Zealand, and so on. This uh, is perpetuating poverty in the majority world, and it's valuing economic productivity over human life. Can Can I ask you to go through a few of the other commandments as well? Uh, for instance, <coughs> Sabbath. How would yeah. the How would the original audience have understood Sabbath as they're coming out of Egypt? And what are those implications for today? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'd I'd like to bottle that question and put it on my shelf. Sure. (laughs) Uh, Open it up at 3 a.m. when I can't sleep at night, just uh, just to feel happy. Right. Yeah, yeah, look, you know, in ancient Egypt, no one had a Sabbath rest, Mm. especially the Israelites. And we know in the ancient world that, that, that peasant farmers, indebted farmers, uh, people who weren't the elite didn't have a day off. They did not have a day off. This was the case in the ancient world. It was a dead culture. It was a slave culture. Mm. And so 
and, and so if you have a look at then at the Ten Commands, whether in Exodus chapter 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5, Deuteronomy 5 verses 12 to 15, you'll see that the Sabbath command explicitly is for the most vulnerable. Mm. And so you rest, it says, you, your son and your daughter, and your male servant and your female servant and your stranger or refugee, the foreigner, mm. the vulnerable foreigner or the vulnerable displaced person who's in your midst, and your animals, it says. Now what a life-giving word to give this nation of ex-slaves. Mm. A Sabbath rest. If, if, if a person is to thrive, if a community is to thrive, work, life has to consist of more than just work. Mm. And, and, and from now on in Israel, no one will be deprived of a day of rest. It's, if we're to thrive, this, this created rhythm of work and rest, and work and rest, and work and rest. So the Sabbath command teaches us that we mustn't live in a way that other people can't rest. Mm. And to be sure that we can't, we mustn't live in a way that we can't rest either. But the focus in the Old Testament, the Shabbat, is for the vulnerable. Mm. That we can't live in such a way that, the, that, that other people, especially the most vulnerable, can't rest. And also we must not live in a way, according to Exodus, such a way that the creation can't rest. Mm. And in chapter 23, verse 12, I think it is, there, there is a law concerning giving the land rest. And the words that are used in that Hebrew, in the verse in the Hebrew, are ethical. That the land rests against mm. that restorative rest. This is way before environmental advocacy, but it's, it's there that the land rests. Mm. And so what does this mean very practically? I, you know, Jim, I think that one of the pressing culture, cultural issues today, even by just its sheer irreversibility, is climate change. And because mm. of climate change... Uh, the land isn't able to rest. Mm. And even already, uh, the most, some of the most vulnerable people in the world living in low-lying areas are being forced off their land. Mm. Uh, the island of Kiribati, which is a whole country in and in of itself, you spell Kiribati, Kiribati, that's the way you would read it phonetically. You know, both the president of Kiribati and Ban Ki-moon, Secretary General of the UN, have spoken about inundating tides coming over Kiribati. And look, I'll share this with you as an Australian, because Kiribati is nearby to Australia. The Australian military have had evacuation measures for Kiribati because of rising sea levels in plan for years, in place for years. And yet the Australian government is still equivocating about the kind of measures they will take in light of climate change mm. to reduce carbon emissions and, and to invest in green energy. For Christians, this has to be um, a, a, an issue of the utmost seriousness because of Shabbat, mm. because we're a Sabbath people, mm. and because the Sabbath is about the creation. It's about living well on the land. Yeah. It's about living well in God's world. Uh, you know, um, Wendell Berry has a beautiful poem um, and it's it's about the law. Now, you will like it because uh, you you brought up the law and Wendell Berry, <laughs> and, and rightly so. And it says something like this. You can check me on it. Something like this. The law is rest. Mm. It's talking about biblical law, Old Testament law. The law is rest. I'm just going to, before I say the whole poem, he's saying that the law is an invitation to live well and joyfully, enjoying God's good gifts together as a whole community. The law is rest. If you love the law, if you enter singing into it as water in its descent. 
Isn't that beautiful? Absolutely. That's all you get. Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> uh, so what's what's the poem called? Do you remember? A Sabbath poem, perhaps. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think so. Um, now, what you're saying is so profound and has massive implications because what you're talking about is the difference between reading the command to Sabbath and concluding that I should take more vacations yeah. and reading the command to Sabbath and saying, how do I work for the rest of the vulnerable who get no rest and the rest of the land and really pressing into substantial issues of justice and honoring God in his world. And so mm. let, let me ask you about this. Uh, when people read the law, because they're going to be reading it in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers, when they come up across these biblical laws, uh, give us some advice about how to read them and how to apply them uh, or into our, in our world. And I'll just give you a scenario where this gets a little wonky. Is um, There was a guy named Charlie Fuqua. Have you heard of him at all? No, I no? haven't. Yeah. He uh, was a state legislator in Arkansas, I believe. And he tried to pass a bill that said that children should receive the death penalty for disobeying their parents. Okay, right. Yeah. And he said, and, and so what he's doing is he's opening, opening up Deuteronomy 18 and just doing a one-to-one -one correlation. Here's what I read. Therefore, that's what's yeah. best for us in, in, in our day. And so my question is, should we just be reading these laws and just legislating them? Or is there a better way of reading this and, and, and uh, shaping our ethical visions in, in light of the, the biblical story? Yeah, thanks for bringing that wonderful question up of how do we interpret biblical law. Well, let me talk about that law that you refer to, or this gentleman's referring sure. to, and I'll try and explain it, and then we'll perhaps uh, tease out some principles of what we did yeah. on the journey that we're about to go on. Perfect. Well, it's the law of the rebellious son in Deuteronomy uh, that, that the gentleman is referring to. The law of the rebellious son um, is remarkable in its original context. You see, um, in, in the ancient world, the father or what is sometimes called the paterfamilias, the, the head of the household, uh, had, had the power of life and death very often over the entire household. Mm. Now, when we say the head of the household, we're talking about really an extended family. We're talking about a man uh, uh, who, with his wife, has had sons and daughters. Those sons themselves have got married and had children. Uh, in ancient Israel, they would have lived together on the family farm, which is their inheritance, a gift from the Lord, and they would have lived in houses that were likely joining one another, um, sharing external walls. Fairly small houses, of course, and they would have shared these houses, even with the animals, uh, the people sleeping upstairs, the animals sleeping downstairs, giving them lovely heat mm. uh, to keep them warm in the evening, even if it was a smelly heat. Mm. Uh, and But you see, the paterfamilias uh, had tremendous power. I mean, I mean, how does one legislate? in an agrarian family-based community. It's very complex. So the paterfamilias traditionally had tremendous power. The law of the rebellious son is a, is a law that curtails uh, the paterfamilias' power so that the, the, the rest of the community, the broader clan, can keep him in check. Hmm. So the instruction is if your son rebels, your daughter rebels, um, you're to bring him to the elders. 
Mm. You see, of the town. And this is the elders of the clan, which would mean the other heads of the household. Mm. Uh, but but it's, <coughs> there was also, excuse me, um, an, an agenda, ethic, agenda ethic here, G-E-N-D-E-R, in that it's not only the paterfamilias, but also the, ma- the mother, uh, his, his wife, the mother of the extended family that, that brings them. So, so immediately the power is spread to women as well, and that's what Deuteronomy tends to do. Mm. It's always, uh, this is one of the ways that it unsettles the um, social norms of the ancient world. And then they come to the town gate, and the elders are the ones uh, that decide whether or not these, this rebellious son or daughter ought to be put to death. So it's actually what it is in a very ancient context. It's very different from ours. It's, it's applying a proper democratic communal restraint upon um, any the worst excesses, excesses of a powerful person. So it's actually it's law about the law court. Mm-hmm. Um, so what have we done there? Let's, let, should we walk back through yeah, and absolutely. see what we did? Absolutely. Yeah, and we can. So, so the first thing we did is we worked out what, what was that. Jolly Law trying to do in its original context. What was it trying to achieve? Mm. And we worked out that, the, that what it's trying to achieve is it's trying to um, make sure that that in a legal scenario that powerful people who have a, a gripe against someone uh, can't win the day. Mm. That vulnerable people in a, in a legal context uh, uh, can be represented. And the justice is done for the most vulnerable, which here is um, the children of a paterfamilias. So it's to do with the law courts, right? So that's the first thing we work out. What's that original function? The next thing we work out, so that's step one, if you're writing things down. Step one is, what was the original function? It was restrain the power of the paterfamilias. Step two is, you know, what is the trajectory that we see Yahweh, the God of Israel, is doing here that's relevant for every society? Mm. Is there a trajectory we're seeing here? What's God trying to achieve because of what God created humanity, how God wants humanity to live in society generally? Mm. And I think what we see here, and we could perhaps stick with the law courts, is that when when there is um, a situation of legal dispute, that the most powerful may not simply have their way, but that justice is done and the vulnerable are protected. Mm. And so that would be step two, that... Um, what is the trajectory um, mm. for what's God's intention for every society that we see here in this law? And so there we are, the law courts, protection for the vulnerable. So you might want to jot that down. Mm. But then number three, um, we start to come closer to our time and we think, well, what are the implications for our own worshipping community? Mm. And then number four, uh, what are the implications for our own society? Whether that be a nation or a neighbourhood. Hey, this law, since you brought it up, you know, it, it, at first glance we think, oh, that, that's not very relevant, but it's tremendously relevant. I mean, in the U.S. context, we, we all know that uh, judgment uh, for crimes, uh, it, it cuts along ethnic lines. Mm-hmm. We, we all know the stats on that. In Australia, judgment uh, and sentencing uh, goes along the lines of... Um, First Nations people in Canada, Aboriginal people in Australia, a similar thing. We'll go to refugee issues mm. and see how the, the 60 million people who don't have a home today and searching for a home uh, have one shot at, and, and perhaps with an appeal, <coughs> at applying for refugee status. And, and if it's not accepted, they can't go back home, they can't 
be, be settled as a refugee, they don't, they're homeless. Mm. Or, uh, or, or simply th think of the most vulnerable in your neighborhood that doesn't have the money to pay for a good life. Mm. And so uh, this, uh, for the worshipping community, is an invitation to advocate and speak up for the most vulnerable. I heard of one of the churches in Phoenix recently that um, has, uh, has organized uh, legal representation for vulnerable people in the community. Wonderful. That'd be a great example. Yeah. That's awesome. And so, you know, we are, we are voting with this in mind, you know. Mm. What, what's fair legislation that is going to uh, treat people, for example, um, who are undocumented immigrants in America? What kind of legislation is going to be fair for them? It's going to do justice for them. Mm. You know, as we worship a God who, who wants justice for the most vulnerable and calls his people to count a cost for the sake of others. Yeah. So, so there's four steps. There's, yeah. there's some four steps there. I, I think that's fantastic. Uh, can you walk us through them real quick again, just a quick four? Yeah, six. So first of all, we thought, what's this law doing in, in, the, in the original community to which it was addressed? Great. Number two, what are the trajectories that, 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 that are displaying for us Yahweh's, uh, what Yahweh's busy doing in the world? What's his desire for every society? What are some just general trajectories? And then, and then third, what's that mean for our own worshiping community? What, what creative, imaginative ideas kind of does this law spark so that we can be assigned to the loving, restorative reign of God in Christ in our community? And fourth, which is connected to three, what's the invitation here for our society? And when we come to four, we start to get into the area of the prophetic. You know, what is the prophetic voice of the church? You know, Jim... Uh, we're, we're at election time, you know, mm. and, and what, what that law you brought up, it just spurs us to think, we, don't we simplify the biblical story when it comes to politics? Mm. You know, I, I, doesn't, doesn't our discussion so far challenge us to discern afresh how Christ in Scripture is a, encountering uh, American society? Mm -hmm. you know, what is the stuff? Forget our party politics. You know, forget the regular the the the, the regular horns that we, that we trumpet. Just think, how does this God, who who appeared in fire at Sinai, how would He encounter American society if He came here today? Mm. In light of our discussion so far, Jim, what is the stuff that would grieve Him mm. and anger Him? Mm. And is this the stuff that the church is voicing? I'm waiting for some some political uh, speech and some political writing by by Christ followers. That isn't caught up in the stale, uh, the stale ruts that American evangelical political discourse is often caught in. Yeah. That is discerning afresh. What does it mean to live faithfully in the biblical story as an American voter today? Mm. So, would you give us, would you give us a few categories, some things to be thinking about that Exodus and Deuteronomy would? would shape a people to engage the election differently and counterculturally uh, to the rest of the world? What would be some, yeah, some, sure. some things to prioritize as we go into the voting booth? Yeah, sure. Uh, absolutely. I'd be happy to do that. Um, I, I'll say before I dive into some categories, just to say yeah. that, we, that the Church of Christ has to find our otherness to the political process. Amen. You know, we have to become ex-political, not in the sense that we, that, that we are withdrawing from politics because Christ stakes claim to politics, as mm. even as he Christ stakes claim 
to economics and to, to immigration and to, to social policy. Mm. So we're politically engaged, but we're ex-political in the sense that we're not, we're not about choosing parties and arguing for why this party's right. We're about discerning what a missional encounter in 2016 in America looks like. How does Christ encounter our neighbourhoods? Mm. How does he encounter public policy? Mm. How does he encounter this nation? And I think, you know, even as we die, speak about some categories right now and try mm-hmm. and think afresh, as you've invited me to, we have to realize that this is a God that's going to ask us to count a cost for mm-hmm. other people. Amen. It's not going to be a, this God of grace isn't going to be calling us to be selfish. Mm-hmm. He isn't going to be calling us just to feather our own nests and just to look after people who are like us. Mm-hmm. He's going to be calling us, I'm afraid, to be counting a cost mm-hmm. for the fatherless, the widow, and the refugee, the stranger. And they, they were ancient categories, but we have our parallels today. Yeah. And so I, I just encourage people who listen to this podcast today to, to consider carefully which political voices are calling us to count cost. Mm-hmm. Which political voices are calling us to take a step back from selfish pursuits and, and to be a better person mm-hmm. and a better society and to count a cost for others, especially those in need. Mm-hmm. And which politicians are using that kind of rhetoric? Hmm. Because I think that's where you're going to find Christ. Yeah, sure. So some categories, mate? Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, uh, it seems to me that <coughs> as a scholar of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, creation care is, is going to be really important. Hmm. And, you, you know, the creation is sacred in the, first five, in, the, in the first five books of the Bible. It's a gift from God. It's, it's the abundant supply that allows humanity and the animals to flourish mm. and is to be given Shabbat, Exodus 23, 10 to 12. Creation too is to rest. And I think I want to mention climate change again. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned it r- right at the beginning of these invitation of speaker categories mm-hmm. because of its sheer irreversibility. Mm. It's, it's the one that can't be reversed. Yeah. So I think this is very important. Sure. I think create, for our generation, Jim, mm-hmm. if we don't nail this climate change one, as people who love God's world, as God loves it, uh, the, the generations that follow us are going are to scorn on us. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it, it's going to be like the slavery issue. Mm. We've got to honour what the maker has made. It, we have to honour the gift he's given. And it seems like every every generation there's something that a that the believers of that time overlooked and ignored that other generations look back and say how did you miss that right how did you miss that it wasn't okay to enslave people and to beat them and to bring them over to a country and to build an economy right. how did you miss that right and so it it feels to me that that the climate change the environmental stewardship might be one of those things that people will look back and say, how did you miss that? Right, right. So uh, with that one, what are, I know you have a, a few others that you've thought through. What are some of the other things that we should consider in this season? We, we speak about the heart of biblical ethics uh-huh. and placing the weakest at the center. Uh-huh. So I think as we vote out of the biblical story, we have, to, we have to consider carefully what are the policies that are strategically designed to care for the most vulnerable in our society. Mm-hmm. I, I won't 
track through uh, why we come to this biblical ethic, because we have. That this has implications for social welfare, it has implications uh, for, for, for every aspect of society and for politics, that, that politics needs to be especially to be bringing the weakest into the centre. Mm. Yeah. And those with means are called, are called to be generous, mm. because God has given to us generally, generously. The, the, the biblical principle that undergirds this is that everything's a gift, mm. you know, and, and the gift, if something's a gift, it, it doesn't become a possession in the traditional sense of possession. Mm. Gifts always move. Mm. Because we've been given a gift, we hold it lightly. We've been, we've been given a gift of, of the abundance of God's creation, and we hold it lightly, and we're willing to give it on. Mm. Because of, gifts remain a gift. Mm. And so as we, as we kind of vote, we've got to think, you know, you know God, God has created a world with more than enough to share. Mm. And, and how can we design our society together so that everyone is flourishing? Mm. Amy number two, protecting the most vulnerable, I think. Mm-hmm. And then um, one, one final question I have for you. Um, well, if you wouldn't mind, I would love to, to talk about different aspects of culture and life. And if you could tell me how Exodus could reshape our vision for that. So some of them will be kind of strange. Some of them will be kind of broad, right? So we'll just take, I'll start off with an easier one because we've mentioned it, but the refugee crisis, like the, the fact that there are so many people who are being displaced from their their homes and how does the book of Exodus shape God's people today to engage something like that? Yeah, that's a great question. Hey, can we skip to the book of Deuteronomy for this one? Uh, yes, because <coughs> I, but the thing I was thinking about is yeah, if, if we, we're kind of running out of time, so I'm thinking we can stick Exodus today. But for this one, let's do Deuteronomy. Yeah. And, and, and then I'll loop back around in the future and interview you about Deuteronomy, and then yeah, we can stick yeah. with Exodus. Sure. Um, you, you know, uh, the the heart. I think one of the um, they have a, a very helpful lens for discerning what God is doing through the narrative arc of the Scripture, in calling a people to live as a sign to His restorative reign, in securing the good things that He has for His creation in the resurrection of Christ, which is the beginning of this, this world renewed, is he's bringing back uh, humanity as family. Mm. He, he's bringing us back together as family. That's what's happening at Sinai. And, and that's what wasn't happening in Egypt. Mm. Egypt was, was a, a tremendous fragmentation of human relationships, of the ultimate othering of other human beings. And what happened at Sinai is God people gathered with him with God dwelling in their midst, signified by the tabernacle, dwelling among them. You know, God was dwelling in the muddled mess, the muck, the mud, the thick of it all. That's what the tabernacle was all about. Mm. Here's God showing the rest of the world through Israel what being human was all about. Mm. And it, 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 it's about reuniting humanity together as kindred. Mm. So as we think about refugee issues, and we think about um, 
the 20 million people who are designated as people who are fleeing persecution and seeking a home, uh, we think about them as our sisters and our brothers, so our fellow human beings. And frankly, Jim, um, I think that when it comes to undocumented immigrants, we have to mm-hmm. think of the same categories. You know, we have to think about this way regarding any human beings. Mm-hmm. That we're sis- in God's eyes, we're sister brother. In God's eyes, we're not one nation and a bunch of people who aren't our nation. Mm-hmm. In God's eyes, we're sister brother. And here, you know, we need to define the, the diff- we need to clarify the difference between nationalism Mm. and servant-hearted patriotism. Mm. You know, we need to clarify the difference between nationalism and servant-hearted patriotism. Wow. patriotism. Because, see, nationalism, it, it, it treats the nation as an idol. Mm-hmm. And it makes the nation and, and ourselves and people who are like us the ultimate thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, servant-hearted patriotism is a way of loving our nation and together working out how we can bless others. Mm. You know, you don't have to love America less in order to love other nations more. Mm. Servant-hearted patriotism, I think that's the invitation in Scripture, that, that we're brother-sister, we're sister-brother, renitted as kindred. That's what was going on at Sinai. Yeah. So there's an invitation here to be generous in our welcome for refugees and to rethink social policy regarding undocum- undocumented immigrants very, very seriously in light of our Heavenly Father, who calls us to count a cost for the other. What, what about the people who would say, these things are for the church and God's people and shape us to be like that. But let's not go off applying them to politics and public life. Well, what would you say to those people? Yeah, no, we, we just, that kind of comment would just miss the arc of the biblical story yeah. altogether. Yeah, 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 right? yeah. absolutely. They, you know what happened in the fall. You know what happened. Um, you, you know what happened in the fall, where where Adam and Eve, in rebelling against God, are also even ripped apart from one another. Here is Adam blaming Eve. Here is Cain killing Abel. And he, in calling Israel, God is starting again with one nation, renewing. Not just one nation, but all of humanity through that one nation. And this is why Israel was called a light to the nations. Mm-hmm. And this is why Abraham was told, I will bless you, and through you I will bless many nations. Mm-hmm. And this is why, of course, in the Gospels, uh, Jesus uh, healed the centurion's son, mm-hmm. the Gentile son. And so God's purposes, you know, you know man, um, the most famous psalm today, his psalm it used to be the sh- the shepherd's psalm, right? Mm-hmm. The Lord is my shepherd, but yeah. not anymore. I think it's because it must be because of third day. Uh, the most famous psalm today, at least for anyone younger than me, and I'm 42, is "Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens." Mm. You know, and, and "Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens." It speaks about God's love for humankind, for every person. That's what largely what this psalm is about. It's God's love for every person and every nation. Mm. And, and, and this psalm, the most famous psalm now, uh, young people, you know this psalm. So you know when you hear this psalm, when you hear Third Day or someone else play it, that this is God's love for every... Just think how much God loves every single person. He gives us our every breath. Mm. He's pouring love into every human being. And his good purposes for this world are for, the, for his people at church and through his people at church uh, to, to bring all things... To, to be reconciled to himself and to one mm. another. All things reconciled. 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. What about art? How might the book of Exodus have some implications for the way we engage in art? Well, that's great, man. Uh, you know, we're about to do a, a, another recording soon, Jim, uh, where we're going to be speaking uh, about uh, the Exodus and biblical law and jazz music. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, we're going to talk about that, um, and they'll be visual as well, I think. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's pretty interesting to me that, that the music that I play and love which is the jazz and also blues was, um, you know, it was birthed in slavery. Mm. It was birthed out of the suffering, the horrific suffering of slavery in America. And the harsh tones, the dissonance, the beautiful dissonance that we hear in jazz music and blues music, it sings the song of that suffering. Mm. We wouldn't have those sounds, you know, if it wasn't for that horrific, horrific uh, injustice. And in a similar way, um, you know, this is the way the book of Exodus starts. Mm. And in a similar way, you know, um, jazz and blues was birthed uh, in this context of slavery. But biblical law, as we've seen, is birthed in this context of slavery. Mm. Lest God's people go back to Egypt. And this is God's ancient invitation to community. You mm. know, In both cases, in, um, in places of of dark evil, God is birthing something beautiful. Mm. And jazz, you know, in God's redemptive grace, jazz music, and, and just by the gifts he's given humanity and, and the resilience of, of, of uh, African Americans in the US, that the, the, the tremendous cry of the oppressed is also beautiful mm. as, a gift to, as a gift to us. Yeah. And so it is with the law, this ancient invitation into authentic community. In places of dark evil, God's busy birthing beautiful things. And I think that's a good word to end with, and I appreciate you taking the time to do this podcast and do this interview, and really appreciate your voice, Mark. Thanks so much, Jim.